Hello and welcome. I'm Julia Smatslow and no doubt this podcast finds you in the midst of self-isolation and looking for some distraction from the fridge. Well, we're happy to oblige. This month, I'm talking to Jasmine Katarikan, Senior Lighting Technical Director at Blue Sky Studios, makers of Ice Age Rio and Spies in Disguise. Along with her colleague Mike Tanzillo, Jasmine also runs the Academy of Animated Arts, an online school specializing in the subtle art of lighting for animation feature. We talked to her about that, as well as other subtle arts acquired over her distinguished career, including the art of salary negotiation, something we'd all like to be better at if we ever allowed to go back to work. Technically, we're supposed to be working remotely, um, but there's like the hardware, you know, it's all these systems that we don't have in place right now because it's an animation studio. It's not, mm. it's not just like take a laptop and go, yeah. you know, there's all these pipelines all the and whatnot. So right now we're doing training. We're doing a lot of Houdini training anyway, because we were going to, um, we're, we're changing things around, but yeah, I mean, it's we're kind of expected to be available during this time sure. and we're going to be giving out like a small amount of work but i mean luckily we were not in production so if we were like in a crunch of production this would be a lot more yeah that would be disastrous and anybody yeah. <laughs> anybody who's got a film actually in the theater i feel pretty sorry for them yeah but uh, i mean we're just rolling with it and see how it goes and just staying safe and trying not to you know, spread anything. The one thing that I think has been quite heartening is it's amazing how quickly we, the whole world has just changed how they do absolutely everything because of a perceived threat. And I just wish that the same kind of logic would be applied to climate change. Unfortunately, like by the time it's like urgent for climate change, it's going to be too late. Exactly. It's like, yeah, it's like this, you know, they'll be like oh no and i was like yeah you should have been thinking about this like 20 years ago <laughs> in case in case it's not obvious to future listeners for posterity we're talking about um living and working in the middle of coronavirus epidemic um <laughs> so my guest is jasmine katarikan and we are actually talking about um lighting and her uh school that she runs with mike tanzo and i'm really really excited to be talking to you today because not only is the first time I've had a guest about uh, to talk about lighting, but you're actually the first woman I've had on this show, believe it or not. <laughs> oh, really? Um, it's not for I lack of trying. It's just that. it just hasn't worked out with people I have lined up. Well, thank you. Yeah. Now I feel a little bit more pressure. <laughs> um, thank you for having me, and I'm honored to be here. And I am. I mean, as you probably know, that this industry is male-dominated, so I'm not... Yeah that surprise, I guess. But yeah, I am honored to be the first female guest. Yeah, well, a lot of people who, who I did line up had to cancel due to kid commitments. So that also goes to show one of the sort of endemic problems, which is trying to balance the two as I can, as I think I can hear you're trying to do right now. But so, uh, I, I know, I apologize. No, don't, don't apologize. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Yeah, I've got, so I've got a two-year-old and a sick husband at home. So I'm likely to also have some sound effects <laughs> at some point. Yeah. So um, yeah, just to to back up a little bit, we um, we heard first from Tina Lee, who said that they've been following the podcast mm -hmm. and and that you guys would love to chat to us um, about about your school and education is always a great topic because everybody's everybody's had some form of one and there's a lot to be learned from people who are working in the industry at the moment and who are tackling education at the same time i think that the more of that that can be done the the, the better for the industry because people who just are working in education tend to fall out of the loop quite quickly as to what the industry actually needs. Maybe also to begin about your background, you had, like a lot of people I've spoken to, you had, it seems to have had a really interesting path into animation via Godiva Chocolatiers <laughs> and an <laughs> economics degree yes. at Vassar. So maybe just tell us a little bit about your, your path in a nutshell. Of course. So, yeah, I went to undergrad at Vassar College and I have a degree in economics, which, you know, is the very um, clear path to animation <laughs> is to get a degree in economics. And the reason why I got a degree in economics is because when I was younger, I was kind of taught in my head that, and I, I will say I was always drawn to the arts, but my mom specifically would be like, you can never get a, like, you, you won't survive if you're an artist. You have to be practical and whatnot. So in my head, I chose economics because I thought it would give me the what technically the good life, you know? Right. And I was, 
I spent four years with an econ degree. I was going, I was literally going to I investment banking interviews. And oh, wow. I still remember this in New York City right after graduation or that spring semester, like five in a row. And they kept, you know, it's an interview. They'd ask you like, why do you want to be in finance? Why do you want to be investment banking? And I had my kind of BS answer already for them. And after like, there's this one interview I remember and I kind of, it was an hour long interview and I did it. And then I left and I was like, I cannot do this. Like hmm. this, if this is my life, it's going to be miserable. And that's the moment when I was like, I stopped trying to get into finance. And of course, I think my parents like freaked out on me. And that summer, I was like, I'm just going to take some classes in design and art, the thing that I'm actually passionate about. And while I was taking those courses, it was very basic, like Photoshop, Illustrator, wasn't 3D at all. And my instructor that was teaching me, since I was picking it up so quickly, he's like, you know, I and the, that guy, he was actually a 3D guy. And he was like, let me show you this. I think it was like 3D Studio Max at the time. He's like, let me show you this. And I had never been, um, I had never seen anything like it. And I was like, that, that is what I want to do. And I, that's like my first sneak peek at 3D. And what I did was I took the 2D stuff when I got my job at Godiva as a junior package designer. I still don't know how I got that job <laughs> with an econ degree and just like I put up a portfolio, I like made a portfolio that summer. Um, and that was great. I worked at Godiva for about So a was year it an animation two. portfolio? It wasn't a design portfolio? It was. It, I mean, like I look back on it and I cringe. I'm just like, I don't even know. It was, it's not, it wasn't that good, I thought, but... It was probably I was straight out of college. I, you know, I wasn't asking for a lot of money. I was just getting my foot in the door. Mm. Um, but it, it led me to, after getting that experience, I wanted to really dive back into 3D because that I started getting really passionate about. It. I tried to learn it on my own while working full time, wow. and I was like not quite getting there. And then, and then I realized like at that time, this was I'm dating myself probably like 18 <laughs> years ago or so, <laughs> like right. almost 20 years ago. And um, there wasn't that much out there. So I actually ended up going to get my master's in it while working full time at NYU. Oh, and wow. So you went I, straight like, for the... Traditionally learned, yeah. For the so academic end. Learned 3D. Hmm. Um, and, but the being, that being said, like I spent two years in grad school, really expensive, and I I was all ready and I hustled and eventually that's how I, I did get work um, doing first commercials and visual effects in New York City at the post houses where I worked for, um, I want to say like five years, five or six years before going to Blue Sky So that studios was where the mill and Rhino FX and Frames Tour. Yeah. Did you yeah, move around like quite I a lot if that was just five years? And yeah, some like at Rhino FX, I was there for five years and then I had I went to Blue Sky as a temp lighter actually okay. to work on Ice Age Four I think now I forget which one it is and mm. then I came back to the city and that's when I worked at the Frame Store and the Mill for well over like a year or two uh. and I loved it there a very different environment and then I decided to go back to Blue Sky um, they offered me a full time position and that's when I decided. I had kind of had to make that choice between feature animated versus, you know, commercial VFX. And that's where I decided to do Blue Sky for various reasons. And I've been here for almost 10 years. Wow. Um, it's crazy to say. So, yeah, if you're doing the math in, in your head, I'm like 25 years old. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, so that's, that's like how I came about my career. And it was not a very straight path, but I would not do it any other way. It was amazing, and it taught me like to just pursue what I really love to do. Did you? At then, what points did your parents decide that that you you were right and that it could be a career, or have, are they still sort of not sure? No, they're very happy. They're very happy about it. They're very proud. I think it was it was after grad school. Well, like, well, they supported me. Um, like when I was in grad school, they definitely supported me, my decision. But I think they were truly happy when, after grad school, I got my first um, like 
official job in 3D animation, and the salary was like, I still remember my dad being like, my dad's a doctor, and he was like, really? And he was like so proud. He's just like, that's amazing. And then I think, like from then on, they're like, oh, okay, you can actually have a really good career as an artist. So that um, dissolved. Yeah, and they're very proud of me. Now. That's good because I think investment banking has the highest entry level salaries of any profession. So I know, depending and on their priorities, the job as a junior package designer, which is probably <laughs> like not, it's like probably the lowest end entry level. So you know. But it all works out in yeah. the end. And then, yeah. um, so at some point, um, you and your colleague, Mike Tanzillo, decided to found the Academy of Animated Art, which was in 2015. What what made you decide to start a school? And is it affiliated with Blue Sky at all? I wasn't 100% sure about that. Uh, yeah, so it is not affiliated with Blue Sky at all. It's a completely separate entity. Um, we do have permission okay. from Blue Sky to do it, just because full disclosure, but it's a <laughs> completely separate thing. I'll make that clear. And the reason why, so I had never, you know, anticipated, anticipating, anticipated like starting a school. I had taught at, like, at different schools every now and then within New York City. Um, but in my mind, I was like, oh, you know, I'm an artist. I'm not, I'm not focused on being a teacher. But what happened was, um, and we both went on separate recruiting trips. So I started going on recruiting trips for Blue Sky to colleges. We even we traveled. I went to SCAD. I went to Ohio. And I was looking at demo reels of students and giving them feedback with the, the head recruiter at Blue Sky. And I realized as I kept giving feedback and talking to students that students, they're not, they're, like especially for lighting, they're focusing on the wrong thing and they're not being taught the right things. And this kind of goes back to what you were saying, how, you know, in most traditional schools, they're taught by wonderful people, but they're also taught by instructors that have probably been out of the industry for many years. Or some, I mean, some instructors have never been in the industry. Mm. Some instructors go straight or just, you know, all academics. So, there's like this hole and what I also realized while I was talking to them is like oh my god I made these same mistakes too I was like this was me in grad school I spent all this money and I did the same exact things that they're doing and I had no clue and I didn't know until um working in the industry exactly like I basically learned lighting on the job the way lighting should be and I was never taught properly in school and what happened was um, Mike was also going on recruiting trips separate from me. And one day we were just talking about it and we're like, yeah, isn't it? And he had the same experiences. And I was like, isn't it shocking that all these years there's no education like to how to really be a good lighter or, you know, they're focusing too much on the software and everything. Mm-hmm. And then we just looked at each other and we're like, why don't we create a resource, the resource that we wish we had to help these people you know, get into the industry. Because we could tell, you know, people are so passionate. They want to get in the industry, but they're just focusing on the wrong things and there was no venue for them to go. So that's how we started Academy of Animated Art. We're like, we're going to be the venue and we're going to teach it exactly how we wish we had it um, and teach them the right things. Amazing. So they get that job, yeah. So what would you say are the main kind of gaps? Um, I, I mean, the one that, that came up now is the, the fact that it's it's quite software focused. And of course, I'm, like as you were saying on your website, software moves on. A lot of studios have proprietary software anyway. So you, you're going to have to learn that once you get there. And so there should be more focus on um, having developing an artistic eye and an artistic sensibility. So is that one of the main gaps? And are there some others that kind of form the pillars of what you wanted to do differently? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely by far the main, the number one mistake people are making is everyone's focusing on a software, which buttons to push, what what technique is out there? Like they, I feel like people think that what makes these great animated films or these looks is they must have some like magic button out there that <laughs> does it for them, you know? And that's the first question we almost always get from students. It's like, what software should I be using? What software should I be Mm. learning? And we're very adamant in saying that the software doesn't matter because the software is just a tool like anything else. It's like 
a paintbrush for a painter, you know, because that paint, paint painter is using the best paintbrush doesn't mean that that painter is going to produce this amazing artwork. He like that artist needs to know the foundations and what makes a great piece of art. And in this case, it's lighting. What makes a great shot? So we're very focused on, you know, software is a tool. So we do use software, but we teach our students first and foremost, the fundamentals, like what actually makes a good image what should you be striving for and then we use the tool as a secondary thing like okay you can everything we teach you can use it in any software available so that's why we're very free about like when the first question comes and a student's like what what software do you need it's like you can use anything you want and we will work with you with that because we know it's not the main focus but that's and I did the same thing when I was in grad school you know when like I was just learning every single button and what each button did mm-hmm. instead of actually learning what would make a good image, and that's that's the main mistake. The other mistake is um, trying to learn everything, feeling that you need to know everything, and this is in life too, probably right. Like everyone yeah. is like trying to like multitask and do everything, but to focus on maybe just the specific things that you would need to know to let's say get you that job in lighting you can focus all your attention on that instead of kind of um, focusing on things that may not get you to that point so we help people kind of hone in and uh, focus on what they need to to know to succeed and then the other thing that I find that holds students back is just like the self-confidence right it's hard starting out and um you know, you might think you're not good enough yet or whatnot, but lighting, like anything, is is a skill, and it's a skill that can be learned. And if you learn it the right way, it's you'll succeed. So I think that would be my other thing that I often see is um, people get a little down about their work, and it's sensitive. It's artwork, right? So, yeah. But like. like if you teach it, teach things a certain way, give small wins, it's a very um, manageable and successful way of teaching and succeeding. We have I love it when I get messages from students that they've gotten their jobs and whatnot. It's it's amazing. It makes all the hard work and all the extra hours at night worth it. Totally. So I've I've often heard from like seniors at studios that. Um... They have to get through a phase with interns or juniors where um, where they're still very like they're marrying their identity to their work, and mm-hmm. it takes a, it takes quite a while to get through that phase where you're very very despondent if you get bad feedback of any kind because there's just basically they're quite thin skinned and they haven't yet learned that just because they've done something that they could do better it doesn't mean that they're a bad person or a bad artist. It sounds like, is that something that you also focus on? It's sort of the soft skill of like learning to get some distance from your work. Yeah, I mean, that's actually our kind of super power, super ingredient that we have with our program is we give professional feedback. And mm. that's and exactly how would we do in the studio. And you're right. You have to learn not to take it personally, but also realize that's how you get better. And that's how you grow. Yeah. And it never stops. And so that's what we do exactly for our students. Like we have um, iterate, like we, they post their work, they will get feedback just the same way as like an animation studio will give you feedback. Within 24 hours, we'll give them feedback and then they'll go back and iterate and do it again. And it doesn't stop until, you know, we, they have this amazing visual for their demo reel. And that's how they're growing. I really like the um, the tip on your on your site about putting a lot more weight into personal projects than than big budget film work you've done. Because <laughs> firstly, you then know that it's it's stuff that's been inspired and totally controlled by the person who's actually applying for the job. And also because it shows that you have enough interest in what you're doing to set aside personal time to work on it. Yeah. Do you have some others? Maybe beyond what was there on the website. I don't know if you have some some little insights for our listeners. Yeah, um, I will say, what, since we did speak about, you know, what not to focus on, which is, you know, the software and whatnot, um, I'll touch upon what a lighter should focus on if you're, if you want to be a lighter. So instead of the software, we kind of call it like the three whys of lighting. 
And that's what we really like to instill in people. Like, why are you lighting? Before you light a shot, think about it. So the three whys of lighting would be, one, lighting is all about emphasizing the story and the mood. So just like any other part of the pipeline, like animators or layout or camera, the whole goal that we're coming together as one is to tell the story, right? So the lighting job is to emphasize this help emphasize the story through mood and this goes through color and light and when I say color it's like little discrete things like the use of cool colors versus warm colors and I kind of like to call it like the invisible art in a way because a viewer if, if you do it right they just feel the the mood within the lighting like that just unconsciously as they're watching it so that's one of the biggest things when you're lighting is you want to know what kind of mood you're trying to portray how where is this in the story and how can you help emphasize the story and the other thing that lighting really does is direct the viewer's eye we have Mm. a lot of power in focusing where the viewer is going to look right like the animator could spend days weeks on this perfect animation but if we put that that character in darkness then it's like, uh, it's all for nothing, right? So we can, our goal is, especially when the shot's up for only like 30 frames or something really quick, we want to make sure the viewer is looking where they're supposed to be looking and focusing. Um, So that's a part of the art form, right? Like kind of directing the viewers. If we light a background character really brightly, that's going to be really distracting to the viewer. And they don't realize it, but they'll miss the point of that shot if right. we're not lighting it correctly. So, so the other tip would be always think about where you want the viewer's eye to go and light for that. And then, of course, the other thing that we emphasize while lighting is um, sculpt, sculpting the visual shaping. of It could be you know the character or just the environment. And we want even... If it seems subtle, we always want to create kind of some kind of shaping so it's not flat and it's engaging. So those are like the three main whys of lighting and how we approach lighting. So this is how if when you come to us, we'll start teaching you these methods instead of saying, open up this software and go through each button. Because I've been in those classes (laughs) where they're just like, these tutorials or these courses and I'm just like falling asleep in the background. So this is a lot more fun to, to learn it this way. Yeah. And then once we learn the foundations, then you apply it to whatever software that you're using. And I will say another thing that we do, and this is also directly related to what we wish we had, is we provide assets for all our students. And these are mm. fully uh, modeled and textured assets and some of them are even animated, ready for you to light. Right. So you can just go right in there and start lighting instead of, I still remember like taking my, like I, when I, I'd be like ready to light, I'm like, I want to learn lighting, but then I'd spend like weeks modeling, texturing and animating sometimes. And then by the time it came to lighting, I like ran out of time. Yeah. So we didn't want our students to go through that. So we have like a full library of asset light of assets for them ready to go so they can just start lighting and focusing on lighting right away i I really like the idea of the invisible art form um that could be said of a a few different aspects of animation that's like i think animation itself can can also sometimes be invisible to laymen if it's done (laughs) nicely but um it kind of makes me wonder what what personality type do you think is ideal for lighting because you have to be sort of content to be that person who might not be recognized by 90% 90% of the audience who goes to see his or her work. Uh, it's funny that you say that because not that there's a, there's a specific personality for lighters, but you can definitely, if you wanted to just do a broad, you know, the lighting, the lighters, and I say this from experience, lighters tend to be more quiet mm. and reserved and definitely don't want to be that person that's out on stage. So like, our lighting department meetings are like the quietest <laughs> meetings I've ever been in where like oh we joke that the animators are like super rambunctious, like there's the extroverts. So I would say like, it's, it's so true in general. Yeah. Like animators are like super extroverted 
and, and then lighters are definitely more the introverts. They're like, um, they don't want to speak up. They're very happy to just like be working in their, you know, their little space and just creating art. And they're okay about not being like like when you said that, I was like, oh, they're totally fine being in the background <laughs> like that, being like on stage. I actually had to do because I'm I think I'm an exception in lighting where I'm a little bit of an extra. Actually, my husband told me that I was I'm an introvert that learned how to be an extrovert, huh. which is kind of true. But um, and that might have to do with the female in the industry, and we'll get to that. Okay. But I will say, like people are, can tend to lighters can be tend to be so shy that I once had to do an interview for um, some kind of media thing because no one else in my department wanted to do it. <laughs> like the leads didn't want to do it. This, even the supervisor was like, I don't really want to do it because we're so introverted. <laughs> so if I had to do, obviously there's exceptions and this is just a broad like thing, I would say that lighters tend to be more introverted. And I will say between like also visually, if and I think this holds true. Someone once told me this. If you go to a movie and you're focused, what like whatever you're focused on, if you're focused on the performance and like that's what inspires you, like the performance of the actor or whatever, or if you're more focused on the visual look of the film, like the colors, or it's just beautiful or whatnot, if you're focused on the actor's uh, performance, you're meant to be an animator. If you're if you're if you took if your takeaway is more about the whole the overall look of the film, mm-hmm. you're meant to be more of a lighter. Right. And when that person said that, I was like, that's totally me. I, I just look at the look and the you know, for me the performance is just secondary. So I thought that was a good way to kind of gauge also maybe where you would fall on that spectrum. What are some misconceptions about what you do? Maybe not only you know, what your mom thinks you do, but what other departments should appreciate (laughs) about your department that people just don't get. Maybe because you're all introverts, you find it hard to speak up about these things. So this is your chance. (laughs) That's a good question. I guess, um, I guess what, I mean, most people that work in the industry know what lighting is, but maybe not. So I would say the biggest thing is how lighting contributes to this, the art of storytelling, right? Yeah. Because I feel like people might just see lighting like, oh, they just make it look pretty or they're just doing, you know, there's no like direct thing that we're looking to do. But really with every single shot, we're looking on how can we best tell the story? Like everyone might, people might think storytelling is only for the animators or for the story artists or the, you know, but storytelling is very key in lighting. And if we don't get that right, it will um, translate through the movie if we don't hit the Mm. story point. So I think that's something that people don't realize how much lighting has an effect on um, the story. So with that in mind, do you, do you use, like, for, for inspiration or for kind of teaching your students what to look for, do you point them to other TDs and to cinematographers or to artists? Like, would you include old masters or, like, inst- like modern Instagram artists? Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, you can, you can get inspiration from all those aspects, all those people, right? We definitely, we start with the traditional. We are very keen on Rembrandt. We start with kind of the Rembrandt lighting model, mm. um, the old school, and then we will touch upon, you know, more modern things from, you're right, all venues too, like cinematography versus like photography, you know, those photographers are great with lighting. And so we go from the, everything. And do, do most of your students who come to you, considering they're, they're, they, you know, you've set the course up in such a way that everything else is kind of taken care of so that you can focus on lighting, does that suggest that they've been through a path already and they, they know that's what they want to do? Do they mostly come to you after having done a little bit of professional work in the field or or, or a, a previous degree? Or are some of them just making a complete left turn in what they're doing and they're just like, lighting, that's, that's for me? <laughs> well, both, really. I mean, to answer your question, we've had students... Um, we had students come from a completely different industry and profession. We had two students that just came through. They're still our students. Um, they were aeronautical engineers. Oh, wow. Both of them. 
Yeah, and they basically, they saw um, some NASA footage or something in 3D, and they saw it, and they're like, that's what we want to do. So they were totally the people that made the left turn. Um, they're based in Spain. They're wonderful. Oh, wow. And within a year of our program, they, 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 said, they saw something, they wanted to do it. They're like, I, we want to be lighters as aer- aeronautical engineers. And within a year after our program, they both got jobs as lighters, at an animation company in Spain. It was amazing. Great. So like, so that's one. We have many people that will totally pivot from a different industry. And then, yeah, we have some people that um, come from, or either like maybe straight out of school or in school and, and finding that they're struggling to, you know, get their foot in the door and they realize they're real, maybe probably like they didn't learn the right things, kind of how we've experienced too that's not helping them get into the industry and we help them that way and then we have people that are in the industry let's say but maybe they are uh, modelers or in a different part of the pipeline that want to learn more about lighting and we do have lighters too we often get messages from current lighters like will i get like how much will i get out of this if i'm already a lighter in the industry Mm. And I say quite a lot, actually, depending on, especially depending on where you are, I will say, especially between commercials and VFX work versus feature animated film work, it's a very different thing. And even when I came in with over six years of experience from VFX and commercial work into feature animation, I learned so much more about just like the foundations mm. and everything because a feature animation is where like you really can perfect the art form and I've learned so much and that was after like six years of experience that you know you would think I'm like yeah, I don't need to learn anymore but does that answer your question yeah so basically, kind of it yeah. kind of begs one of my other questions which is um would this would this course suit people who wanted to take it back to VFX or perhaps even gaming or is it Primarily, I mean, your focus is obviously on feature animation lighting. I think anyone can benefit from it. It is catered to feature animation. That being said, what we teach is universal. So I think it would help even if you're doing VFX, definitely gaming. I think gaming, I mean, gaming, it's it's its own thing, but you still need to know the foundation. And what would you say is the difference between a good lighting artist and a great lighting artist? Ooh. (laughs) That's a hard one. Hmm. So a good lighter, I will say, is one that can, um, a good lighter from the standard of like a studio is someone that can take a shot from start to finish in a way that directs, like addresses the director's notes, right? That's a good lighter. It's someone that can just do the job. What makes a great lighter, I think, is someone that does that plus adds their own, takes on the initiative to add that extra step. Like let's say, and makes it a conversation with the director. So instead of just taking on the notes and kind of saying, okay, and going back, hitting the notes, coming back, maybe, you know, when they, I've seen this where they get a note and instead of, you know, maybe they'll come back and then they'll say, oh, while I was working on this, I I had a great idea what if we did this and this will really emphasize what we're trying to do? And then they'll pull up an alternative. So they like have a version where they hit the note and then they have another version where they're like, oh, and then I did this extra thing that I think would be great. And more times than not, the director would be like, oh my God, it's amazing. I didn't even think about that. So it makes it more like a collaborative thing where the lighter is actually extending and putting more input into it than just taking a note and putting it back. So I think that's what makes a great lighter when they take the initiative to really look at something and see like, how can Mm. I push this to the next level even more than what the director asked for? That's a, yeah, that's a great tip. And I think it's one that works for, for people in every department. Great. I I don't think either of us have actually mentioned, so it's entirely online, although you've, you know, we called it a venue, but um, so you can do it from anywhere. And it's uh, yeah. also broken down into modules, so you don't have to sign up for the entire thing if you think you just want to focus on character lighting or environment lighting. And is everything taught by you and Mike? Yes, everything for the feature, um, for the lighting for feature animation are taught by Mike and myself. We do have some guest um, 
lecturers oh, sometime. Cool. Like for example, we have a course that's uh, that I teach succeeding, um, getting and succeeding in the industry. And it's kind of like a post course where it helps you from, you know, applying to like, even like what to wear on the interview yeah. and how to like those things that no one ever talks about. And yeah even to negotiating and we have for example a guest speaker on that on that course from columbia oh wow a professor from columbia that um her focus is on how to best negotiate that's a major job so what so, fac- what yeah, faculty does she work at in columbia she's in the business i'm pretty sure okay um yeah so uh, I, I saw that kind of that professional skills module on your site and that I was really pleased to see that because I'm I've just added something similar to the course that my husband and I teach which is um drawing like it's introduction to drawing for animation but it's it's for underprivileged teens so we offer it sort of pro bono and just last year we introduced exactly the same thing like a, a day worth of like how to negotiate like what to wear to an interview how to behave professionally because it's not it's not offered at any level of education and it's it's stuff that you know is really vital that kind of soft skill side of stuff that takes you a long time to learn and often by the time you learn it it's too late yeah it's totally true i agree with you it's like one of those most it's like really important but no one knows and then exactly the way you learn is through really um expensive mistakes right exactly <laughs> or like very very hard mistakes like, I like you. We're probably like trying to save our students and people from making those hard mistakes so they don't have to go through it. And then you're right along the, when we, we were designing our academy, we strategically made it all online, mm. all the courses online and on demand because we understood that people are coming from different places in the, in the whole entire world. And we wanted to not, we, we we made a point that we wanted to make this offer this to everyone, no matter what their location, because we found that, you know, with traditional education, if they don't live in the right city or they don't have the time, it's, it makes it really hard for them to advance to learn. So yeah. that's why we did that. So they can learn at their own pace whenever they want. And then that, and then we have the direct feedback so they can get put, like the best of both worlds and they can really cater their education to what they want and not have to um, be tied to a schedule or, you know, the stress that goes into that. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. It's maybe a a good point to also um, do a sidebar on your experiences as a woman in the industry, because one thing that comes up so many times is the kind of glass ceiling and the fact that women aren't so good at negotiating for themselves. I often think we'd be better at negotiating for each other. <laughs> you know, if we went and said, I think Sally should be earning this, um, we'd probably yeah. get better better results. But um, how has your um, has your experience, how, how has it been and, and has it changed a lot over the years in terms of the maybe extra effort that you have to put in to, you know, to do well in the industry as a woman? What what advice would you give to to girls trying to crack into the industry? Yeah, so I would say, so going back to the fact that my husband calls me an introvert that has turned into that has learned to be an extrovert. I actually um, I agree with him, and I think I kind of know it's because I went into this industry. So when I say that I'm an introvert, like in kind, I'll give you a perspective in kindergarten. I was so shy that I didn't speak out loud for the whole year. Like I'd have to go up to my teacher, whisper in her ear. Like I refused to to speak out loud, and I was I was just like really quiet. And all through college, I was just that very quiet person. And when I got into this industry, I still remember my first job at Rhino Effects. There was probably maybe two other women, and usually they're like producers unfortunately yeah. Yeah, it's true. um what happened was one i will say so what happened was i i was thrown into this male dominated um environment and it actually got me out of my shell because i was forced to to be more talkative in a way i don't know i don't know if that makes sense but 
not that well, I will say this: the people in the industry, even though they're male dominated, are amazing. Like yeah. that's what I love being in this industry so much. And I guess the advice that I give to women is to be social in a way where, like, when you go to your first job, I think it's very easy to just like kind of hide in the corner and be really intimidated. Intimidated, but to like one, I found artists in this industry male or female are, are great people and like once you engage with them they're really nice they're really helpful and they're really kind it's not it's not like a competitive type of feel at all from what I've experienced mm. and it all depends on personality too but when it came to negotiating um I think this is where my econ degree comes into play because yeah. I still remember <laughs> in this one econ class that they there was like a graph that said the number that you come in at for your first job or your first job in that company will dictate your entire career. Yeah, I've heard that. that. Company. So you, yeah, so you have to fight hard for that first salary. Yeah. And I still, I remember that. And that's exactly what I did for each job. So my recommendation for each first job that you get in this, in the company, you can't just take what they, you can't, you have to fight for it. Because think of it this way, if you come at this certain salary, you're only going to be able to incrementally scale. So once you're in there, so exactly. you have to fight. The, the hardest fight is that first fight. But with the exception maybe of your first internship, in which case it might not be a great idea to negotiate too hard. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's where you don't have leverage. The best scenario, which I've had this scenario, and it's a dream scenario, you get two job offers at the same time. Oh, wow. And you you Play them like, off against you each other. compete. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. And it's like amazing. <laughs> it's like, well, this so I could do that. Yeah. And I mean, the 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 draw of that is you have to be willing to go to either one. Like, yes. But you still can use them, you know, off each other, and that's probably the best scenario. Yeah. But yes, you're right. the The first job you might not have as much leverage, and in that way, I would say, and I've seen this from experience, if if your priority is to, because it's different priorities, right? If your priority is to increase your salary, let's say, what you would need to do is you would have to leave that first job. Yeah. And then, and come back maybe. Because yeah. that's the way, and I've seen it happen where people come in at the entry level and they're, and like incrementally as, you know, they go up, but they might be there for 20 years and their salary doesn't reflect that because they started at such a rate. And they, some people end up being really bitter about it, right? Mm. So Especially when um, they find out what other people are earning, which is what bosses are usually trying to avoid. Exactly. So I'd say, like, if your priority is to, like, if you love it there and you're okay, you know, that's your career. Like, you found the studio you want and you're going to be a lifer then that's your priority. Be okay with that. If your priority is to kind of like rise economically in your salary, your move will, I would suggest, would have to be to leave at some point and then you could come back and yeah. then you, you'll be at a different negotiating point if that's your goal. I think, so it all depends on what your goal is. Yeah, I think that kind of power move is, is what men are better at as well. I don't know. I think women lack the confidence to really you know to say yes i am playing you off against each other and um that's my right or to say yes i am leaving and perhaps i'll come back but you know not to feel bad or like a betrayal and to just you know realize that business is business um and to not let anybody make you feel bad i, I feel like men are a, a little bit better at that generally speaking than women because we're maybe a bit i guess more socially driven so We'll be taking a lot of other people's egos into account instead of our own best interest. Yeah, I guess I guess my advice to that is because you're right. Because women are like they want to please and mm. they don't usually want to um, be confrontational about things. I guess my advice is when you're doing your own negotiating, think of it kind of step away and think about how you would advise your friend. Right? If this wasn't you personally. Like kind of basically what you said, we should negotiate for each other, right? Yeah. What if you kind of stepped away and you were like, okay, if this was not me personally, and this was I was looking at this as my friend, how would I go about this? Would I be more aggressive? Would I 
ask for you know this and one of the biggest things i like to do when i'm negotiating is i like to back it up with um like when i one you take your time like don't feel the need that you need to say anything on the spot when i get the first offer i usually like kind of take a pause and bring it back and think about it and and then think of the counter but the most important thing i think this would help women too is when you give your counter each thing has a specific reason to it it's a factual it's like a maybe like you know you're asking me to move and the the lifestyle the the what's it called the expense or yeah cost of uh, living quality of life yeah the, the like the cost of, of living right. there is more expensive or like you back it up with very concrete things and it will help your argument first of all but it also will help you feel confident in asking for it and um taking that time and thinking of like what do i what what, what do i really deserve you know but i think also if they do their research too by looking at comparable people in that position and seeing what they make then you could say then it will give you more strength too to be like okay This, this is what actual people are making. I'm gonna, I should make that too. Yeah. So, and I'm a big advocate of like, like if you think your number is, I don't know, like 100, right? Then you should ask for 110. Right. Because it's a negotiation, right? So most likely if you go, if they're offering you 90, but you you know your, your point is 100, go back with 110. Exactly. And then... And then you'll have that discussion and be like, okay, maybe a hundred. And then there's a compromise there. Yeah. Um, so I, that's I, also a tip I would say. I, I've been watching Billions and um, the main character said something that, that really stayed with me, which is nobody leaves a negotiation happy. So that should be mm. what you have in mind. And I just love that because you often feel like you've done something wrong when you get the salary that you want, but it's also not quite what you wanted. But an, a negotiation in which nobody leaves happy is one that's gone well. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, I really true. like that point. Yeah. Uh, the, other, the other lesson um, that I think I read in a negotiation book is always try and get the other guy to say a number first. And it can sometimes be super hard because they'll also be asking, but it's all, it's all like a, a dance. So to, to find out what their number is puts you in a position of power. That, that is so true. I still remember one person, she just said to me, she's like, can you just tell me the least amount that you would accept? And I was like, what kind of question was that? I just kind of laughed. And I think I, I responded with like, well, will you tell me the highest number that you'll offer me? Like, because I thought it was just so comical. But it's true. It's like to see their hands is a huge thing because that's like, where you can gauge it. And it, it might be more too. than you were going to ask for, and you will never know that if you don't try and get them to make the first move. Um, <laughs> so true. Just to go back a little bit about how you're saying you're more comfortable with, with um, guys having, having worked in, in the industry for a while. They haven't been totally untouched by the, by the Me Too movement, as you know, and I was wondering if you'd sensed any kind of shift or I guess it could be an improvement just in culture or... Has it just made everybody a lot more nervous on how to deal with each other? Yeah, I think, I mean, my, the culture at work is pretty good for men to women, I will say. And I will say what, what is really great about having um, women kind of just the minority at work is the women at work kind of pull together. Like we have mm. women only Slack channels, right? That right. people can ask things. And in the bathrooms, it started last year or two, like they started this movement where like every day they would put a post-it up with motivational quotes, like female motivational quotes to like rev you up. That's great. And it sounds like women are kind of pulling together, which means there's enough of you to be a, a force to be reckoned with. Since we're talking about the, the culture at Blue Sky, did you want to maybe tell us a little bit about what it's like working there? Especially things have probably changed a lot since um, since the Disney acquisition uh, last last year, I guess. Um, so you've you've been there a while already. So um, tell us what it's like at the moment. Well, that's an interesting question. It's <laughs> Blue Sky has been in an interesting position for the past. And this is only for me, my personal, this doesn't speak for anyone at Blue Sky. Um, you know, for the Disney acquisition, it was a huge thing, right? So 
and it was announced a long time ago now. I forget, maybe three years ago. So ever since the announcement, you know, people have been a little on edge for when anything happens, when, you know, companies merge and or are bought out and whatnot. So the studio, it's, it's definitely gone through its changes and it's still going through changes. I will say that throughout it all, we were able to <laughs> release Spies in Disguise, which I think... Yeah. You know, story-wise and look-wise, it was amazing. And especially if we think about everything that was going on during this time, the transitions, acquisitions, the changing of guards in a way, that the studio really worked together um, as a team and an artist to pull it together. And as we speak, you know, things are still adjusting. And right now, with the coronavirus, that's another hiccup in things where, you know, we're working from home today is the first mm. day that we're working from home. And that's going to be a whole different thing. And that may also change the how we work in the future, right? Um, so mm. it's always evolving. I will say the best part about Blue Sky are the people. And the people are, are amazing. They're strong. And I love just interacting with the people there. That's great. Is there a lot? Do you, do you think there's a lot more space at kind of entry level now that there's there seems to be a, such such a huge boom in in content because of the streaming platforms? And I'd I'd heard that um, that's a, a focus for Blue Sky under Disney. So are you seeing a lot of growth at the moment? I suppose. Yeah, I can't speak for I can't speak for Blue Sky specific. I'm not um, that information. I just don't have. But I will say in general, and we tell this to our students as well that. It is a great time to get into the industry because of all the streaming, yeah. because of all the new content that's going to need to come out, that it's a really good time to get into the industry because there's going to be a lot of need for for content and artists. You can check out Jasmine and Mike's school at academyofanimatedart.com. If you sign up for any of their courses, ASA listeners will receive some bonus content, so do send them an email to learn more. I'm Julia Smutzlow, wishing you good luck and lots of creative inspiration for the rest of lockdown. Stay safe and wash your hands and your keyboard. It's worse than a toilet seat. No, really it is. Look it up.